Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'll be talking with Bonnie McDonald, co-founder of Backcountry Lifeline. Her group was formed to provide tools and resources to make mountain biking more safe, and hopefully today she's going to be able to share some tips that could come in handy on the trail someday. Thanks for joining us, Bonnie. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start by asking you, what exactly is Backcountry Lifeline? So Backcountry Lifeline is an organization that, as you said in your introduction, works with the mountain bike community um, to basically help them be safer on the trails. So we work with riders, race directors, and event organizers to help them be prepared in the event of an emergency. So we give them tools and resources and training uh, so that they can do what they can to help other riders when accidents happen. Yeah, it sounds like your organization has a little bit of a different focus than others, too, that might be providing like first aid instruction and things like that, whereas you're going more toward like race organizers and event organizers. Is, is that fair to say? That's fair to say how it started for sure. Um, our organization uh, started from uh, the enduro race scene. That being said, since its founding, we've definitely taken it to a lot of schools and clubs and pretty much any any type of mountain biking group, be it just a bunch of friends riding together or a little bit more of a formalized organization. Yeah. So, what, I mean, what led you to co-found the organization? You mentioned it has its roots in enduro racing and events. So how, how did all this come about? It came about following a race that happened in Crested Butte, Colorado, which is uh, where I live. Um, and it was um, a race that was part of the Big Mountain Enduro Series, as well as a U.S. stop for the Enduro World Series. And in that race, my fiancé crashed and died as a result of his injuries. So following that event, we heard from some fellow racers who were there and who were present and um, took from that experience a need that we really wanted to try to fill. Oh, man. Yeah, that's that's really tough and hard to imagine anybody going through that. But it sounds like you've been able to sort of find some mission in that. And it sounds like Backcountry Lifeline is definitely something that's needed in the sport. Yeah, I would agree. Um, it has been very, very uh, readily accepted and welcomed. We've received so much support from day one. Um, both from the riders themselves, as well as race organizers and um, industry sponsors saying, as soon as they heard what we we're doing, yes, yes, you know, it's it's time, we're, it's, we're late, and let's catch up, and let's, we'll get behind you, and let's put it out there. Uh, so it's been, it's been really great. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. So before we jump in and, and talk about some tips for riding and being safer on your rides, Let's talk a little bit about the event organizers. When it comes to mountain bike races and big events, what are some of the challenges that the organizers face uh, in terms of providing a safe environment? You know, so I would say there are two main things. Basically, there's no there's no standard in the industry. So we have had some race organizers that we've worked with or are friends with who have it dialed. They very prepared. They talk about this stuff in advance. They hire medical support teams. Um, but they don't actually have to. There's there's really no standard, like I said. Yeah. And then we have other groups contact us and say, well, we've been doing this event for years across cities, towns, states, countries, 
and we don't have anything in place. Oh wow! So in terms of you know some of the some of the things that kind of can be done are areas of opportunity for event directors and race organizers. The, the biggest one is having this conversation and thinking about it, which isn't a really fun part of mountain biking. <laughs> right. No one really wants to think about like worst case scenarios. They want to think about, you know, the money shots and the racers and the prizes and the party. Right. So I would say that's step number one to be to be thinking about it and to be prepared to make a plan to have the tough conversations. Is that expensive? I mean, is that part of the reason that maybe people cut corners or, or just, just don't think about it because they got a million other expenses and things they're trying to do. What do you think it is that, that keeps people from doing that? I think it's both, honestly. For one, again, it's it's just not the sexiest part of the, of the event. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's not a ton of money in these bike races that these event organizers and race directors are putting on. Yeah. And if they want to give racers and riders, you know, this deluxe medical support system, that money has to come from somewhere. So um, you're either going to be begging sponsors for more money, or you're going to be upping the entry fee for riders who oftentimes are. Yeah. It seems like a lot of races too, they, you know, they purchase like event insurance. I mean, I think just about every race has that and, you know, works out to a few bucks per rider or something, but that, that doesn't really cut it. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that doesn't keep anybody safe. That just kind of protects the organizers. Right. 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 Yeah. Medical support is on top of that. So a lot of times folks are hiring a team to come in and provide, provide the support for their race. And, you know, it might depend on, how big the race is, if it's front country, if it's back country, or what they can afford in terms of how much support that is and what resources and tools they're bringing and what that looks like. Yeah. What does that look like sort of at a minimum? And then how does it look different for, yeah, like a back country race where the course is just, you know, miles and miles wide and difficult to access? I think it, it all varies. Like I said, there really is no standard. There's nothing you actually have to do. Right. Although I think at that point you're playing with fire, but, um, yeah, it really kind of depends on the, on the terrain and how big the race is, how many riders you have, how many miles you're covering, um, how many riders are riding different stages at once. Um, your team can get pretty big. Yeah. I mean, is the standard though, or is the idea that say, you know, a medical person is always within five minutes of a rider at any point in the course? Or is there like, you need to have X number of medical people per participant in the event? Like, do you, are there sort of metrics or like baselines that that you might recommend to people? I think there are things that we would recommend to people, but again, there's, there's no standard and it's really, it's really up to the individual. Um, and it's also, you know, up to the individual, what that team looks like. If everybody is a hired medical provider, at what level is their licensure? Um, are they using volunteers? So usually we find it some combination. There's some EMTs on course. There's at least one or more advanced medical professionals, paramedics, and or even doctors. And then maybe some woofers and some other, that's a a wilderness first responder, and some other folks who can act as spotters. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, like you said, every race is different and every course is different. And I mean, it's good too, I guess, to have it 
be sort of flexible and, and not say there's like a one size fits all solution because as soon as you do that, you're going to start finding exceptions and that becomes difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. But in terms of, you know, going back to your previous question, you know, what, what are things that can be done to, uh, to make the races safer, certainly those conversations is one and having an incident action plan is one, but also probably the the biggest struggle and the biggest challenge for races is communications. So having, you know, a communication system that works, particularly when you're out of line of sight. Yeah. That can always be a challenge. For sure. Especially, I mean, we rely on our cell phones for everything, but a lot of these courses, races are happening places where you don't have cell phone coverage. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I could see communication definitely being a challenge. Yep. That's something we, we work on with folks quite a bit and just determining, okay, where will radios work? Do they have to be in line? Uh, where are sat phones more appropriate? You know, what else do we have in terms of, you know, in-reach devices or spot devices? So those are some of the things that we start bringing into the conversation, again, for whatever is appropriate for that, for that race and that uh, locale. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like that's really helpful. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some specific things that riders can do to prepare themselves. So outside of a race environment, people just going for rides in various places, maybe it's the local trail system, or maybe it's the backcountry. What are, what are some of the most common injuries that mountain bikers face and how can they be prepared to, to react to those? Most common injuries, I would say the first one is, you know, kind of cuts and scrapes. Um, So not too much you have to worry about there. Unless, of course, that cut is beyond a scrape and you've got a bleeding issue. Um, So that is something that we train up for quite a bit um, because bleeding is something that can be that can be stopped. So um, we can talk about that more in a little bit regarding stuff that you can carry with you. I would say kind of the next most common injuries all have to do with the shoulder because we're all mountain bikers and we like to fall on outstretched hands. <laughs> right. Or crash into trees with our shoulders. Yep. All of that. So we get shoulder stuff. We get dislocations is a big one. Separations is a big one. And then of course the broken collarbone, which if you ride your bike long enough, <laughs> it's a good chance you might come in to run across one of those and yourself or a friend. Right. Don't jinx everybody at once, but <laughs> yes, it is yeah. unfortunately very common. I would say following that, maybe finger dislocations and concussions. Those are, those are probably the biggest, the biggest uh, injuries that mountain bikers tend to run into. And so what we do with our course versus a, a regular sort of first aid course that includes everything you know, including marine stings and a whole bunch of things that, you know, we're not going to come across too much. We really try to uh, t- take our first aid program and cater it um, to, you know, mountain bikes specifically. So what are the things we're going to run into? What can we do about them? What are the things we need to carry? Yeah. So what are some of the things that riders can carry? I mean, is this, we're we talking about like a lot of stuff that you need to be prepared or is it, is it fairly straightforward? It's really pretty straightforward. I mean, none of us are going to turn into uh, doctors and surgeons here, and we're not <laughs> advocating that. And, you know, we ride bikes. We're kind of weight conscious, and we can't be carrying, you know, big, big uh, duffel bags full of right. first aid equipment that we don't know how to use. <laughs> so you can actually do quite a bit with what's in your own pack for a lot of the things that um, you'll run into on a trail. And truthfully, when you run into things on a trail, you're, again, you're not trying to 
fix it entirely. You're just trying to intervene. You're trying to stabilize. You're trying to get your friend to definitive care. Nothing that we teach replaces, you know, EMS services. Right. And that, that kind of raises the point that exactly what we're trying to do is we're trying to make a difference in that first hour. The first 60 minutes of an injury, depending on your recognition of it and the way that you intervene can can make a pretty big difference. So really you're trying to stabilize folks and you're trying to, to get them out of there or, you know, get them comfortable and stabilized while you're waiting for possibly an evacuation. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, you know, the shoulder injuries and that sort of thing, you can do a lot with what's in your pack. You can splint almost anything. You need three things. You need something rigid. You need, you know, something to fasten, some sort of strap or something, and you need padding. And you can get that stuff with probably what's on you, a bike pump, knee pad or an arm pad, straps or belts or something from your camelback or a tube even and padding, you know, anything, take off your socks. That's brilliant. I mean, I hadn't even thought of that, that you could use the things that you already have, like, like the strap on your camelback or something to actually do it. So you're not carrying stuff that's just like for first aid. Yeah. Or even the camelback itself that makes a really great sling for someone who has a hurt shoulder. You know, if they, you know, put their camel back on backwards and sling it up, then you can, you can get out that way. Yeah. I'm starting to think of all kinds of creative stuff now. Like the camelback bladder could be like an IV bag, right? (laughs) Should, (laughs) should you know how to, yeah, administer and make IV solution and administer um, an IV? Sure. No, I do not. So just kidding. Probably a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Bad idea. But yeah, it's pretty funny to see. We do uh, quite a bit of splinting in one of our courses, and it's it's pretty interesting to see what people come up with. But in terms of something that you might not normally carry that can be a, a big game changer is really focusing on that bleeding. The things that we tend to think about in emergency situations are, we go back to the, a- the ABCs, so airway, breathing, circulation. The other things that we might run into nasty bruises or cuts or scrapes or even broken bones, barring a couple, are going to be distracting and painful, but they're not going to be what's going to kill a person. Airway issues, breathing issues, and circulatory issues, i.e. bleeding, Mm -hmm. are things that, if not intervened quickly, could quickly result in a death. So um, in terms of the bleeding stuff, I do recommend folks carrying a hemostatic agent, an Israeli bandage, or and or a tourniquet, um, and those are those are definitely things I keep in my pack. Yeah, how, I'm I'm not familiar with. Uh, it's like an anti clot agent. Is that what you're talking about? And how big is that? Or I mean, is it like come in a little bottle? Or like how does what does that even look like? Uh, they can come in different forms. So you can actually get some bandages that already have um, hemostatic agent in them. Um, you can also get them kind of separately in powder forms and that sort of thing. And they're pretty widely available. REI and that sort of thing will have them. Um, but they do help help uh, with most bleeding can be controlled with direct pressure for 10 or 15 minutes. But, you know, if you're having trouble stopping bleeding, hemostatic agent is a, is a great thing to use. Once you start getting to, you know, an artery issue, that's when you're going to need um, a tourniquet for a limb. Okay. And they're life-saving. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, a tourniquet that you should have something, an inner tube or a strap from a bag, something to be able to fashion one of those. 
Yeah, I'd still, um, yes. And I still recommend buying one online. Um, inner tubes and straps are, um, especially inner tubes are really kind of hard to, to really cut off circulation, which is what you're trying to do um, because they're stretchy. And sometimes uh, they have to be uh, a certain width to be effective and they have a windlass on them to really crank them down. I mean, you're trying to 100% stop the flow of blood yeah. to, that, to that limb. Interesting. But they're really cheap online. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And I imagine they're pretty lightweight and packable as well. Yeah. They're lightweight. They're packable. They're easy to use. Cool. Can save a life. Yeah. <laughs> Are there other items that uh, people should consider carrying with them or, or other things that they can address in the field uh, that might help somebody get back safe? Truly, I think those are the biggest ones. Um, I do also always carry something sweet, even if it's uh, cake frosting or icing <laughs> for the, you know, someone who's having a glucose issue. So there are, there are lots of different things that you can carry on our website. We keep um, a full list. So we have, we actually also sell kits. So we have kind of a small kit um, with some recommended things. Um, and then we have larger kits for folks who are maybe leading a ride or, you know, are a coach or responsible for a group uh, that we recommend if they're prepared and willing to carry a little bit more weight. And then we kind of get into some of the medications, um, just over-the-counter stuff uh, that can make a difference and different different bandages and, you know, knives and stuff to cut cut with. But the most important ones are, you know, your splint-making stuff, which you probably have on you, um, and that's for comfort and, and extraction and the bleeding stuff. Yeah, that's great. How much training does a person need to really be, like, effective and be able to handle, like, most of the major stuff sounds like you guys offer probably multiple classes, but like what's sort of the, the base that people will want to get? You know, anything is better than nothing to be a hundred percent honest. So, but we do offer two different courses. So our courses are basically divvied up between front country and back country. Um, so the front country stuff basically means that you're within an hour of definitive care of a hospital or an ambulance. And you're basically, again, just kind of looking to do those interventions for the stuff that's going to kill you, the ABCs, mm -hmm. and getting folks kind of stable and comfortable and monitored. You're, you don't do a whole lot when you're in the front country setting, when you're in cell phone service, when you know that help is pretty much around the corner. Right. So those tend to be a full eight-hour day, and we go over... Uh, it's called the basic first aid class. So we go over all sorts of things designed for that front country setting. When you're getting more into the back country where help is over an hour away, sometimes many hours, sometimes days, then we're getting into wilderness first aid stuff where you intervene a little bit more. You might be, you know, working to relocate that dislocated shoulder or realigning that broken arm or lifting and moving your patient versus kind of hanging out and waiting for professional help to arrive. Uh, so those are our four-day camps. Uh, we do them over four days so that we can incorporate a whole bunch of on-trail scenarios and, of course, so that we can ride our bikes together. Yeah, so that sounds like fun. tend to be our flagship course. People really love them. Yeah. Um, we're doing one here in Moab Desert pretty soon in November. Oh, cool. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned too, and you mentioned it's part of that backcountry course is, you know, beyond just stabilizing somebody, a lot of times you need to start thinking about how you're going to 
get them out or get them to care. So is that part of it as well? I mean, what, what can bikers do? I always wonder that myself, you know, when I'm way out and I have that thought, you know, I'm like, what if I broke my leg right now? Like, how would I get out of here? Or what if the person I'm riding with did the same, you know, how would I get them out? And are there sort of tips and tricks that you use uh, to make that possible? Not so much tips and tricks. We do talk <laughs> about it. No <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here, here's the uh, lifting and moving hack. Yeah, or like putting two bikes together. I mean, I imagine there's got to be some creative way yeah. other than like a fireman's carry for, you know, 15 miles. Right, right. Um, so one of the biggest things is really what a process in evacuation is. It takes a ton of people to do an evacuation. Hmm. Even our local search and rescue here, I mean, they send out 20 people, you know, as many as possible, um, depending on where it is, because they're they're very hard, yeah. particularly in a backcountry terrain. So we do go over kind of lifting and moving and fashioning litters and that sort of thing in our wilderness first aid class. Okay. Well, and so what about if someone is injured and say it's two people and one of them's injured, What's the best thing to do? Do you stay with the person? You get them stabilized and stay with them until help arrives? Or do you split up and, you know, hopefully go out and find help? What's the best approach in that situation? So if you're in a place where a rider is likely to come by or somebody else, you know, it's kind of a a well-used trail, Mm -hmm. I would stay with the person, provided they're stable. If they're tanking and kind of, you know, very evidently deteriorating right before your eyes and the only chance of them getting help is you going for help, you go for help. Again, it sort of depends on A, the injury and B, the area. If you are out where nobody knows where you are in a trail that's not used and you have no way to communicate and no cell reception and that person isn't getting out on their own and they're not getting out with you, Um, And pretty soon it's going to get dark and it's going to get cold and it's possibly going to rain. It's going to be all these like cascading failures (laughs) uh, whereby if you don't move, there's going to be two patients instead of one. Then then, yeah, you and we we kind of teach people that. How do you leave the patient? And, you know, if they are semi-conscious or, you know, what's the safest way um, for them to remain stable while you run for help? Yeah. So the A lot of the course is really, it boils down to um, this decision-making process, serious or not serious. Do I stay or do I go? Do we evacuate or do we not? And truly, this is, um, I'm an EMT, uh, and this is kind of the stuff that we talk about in EMT stuff too. You have these quick, you do this, you do a quick initial assessment. What do you see? What do you hear? You go through patient interview and you do a secondary assessment, which is a little bit more hands-on. And the whole time you're thinking, serious or not serious, emergency or no emergency, stable or becoming unstable. And you're kind of consistently revisiting your decision-making process. So a lot of our course is really getting people just to, to be thinking in those ways and you know, to be, to be looking for clues and to recognize an emergency, maybe before it's an emergency. Um, so that they can intervene appropriately. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Do you have any sort of case studies of situations where maybe mountain bikers have been injured and either people did the right thing or maybe they did the wrong thing uh, that you could share? Um, I wouldn't say it's a formalized case study, but I will say that we get get stories 
almost all day, every day in our courses Mm -hmm. of the person who took a crash and popped right back up and, um, you know, shook it off and they've got their adrenaline going and got back on their bike only to deteriorate a few moments later and or realize that they weren't stable and, um, you know, we're at that point lacking some sort of uh, structural integrity. <laughs> Another fall, and then it's much worse. Now you have a much more serious problem on your hands. Yeah. Um, we received, uh, we've heard other stories of people coming across someone uh, not fully conscious and really not knowing what was going on. And they only found out after the fact, and uh, then they learn it in our course too, it was um, they needed sugar. You know, it was a diabetic emergency. Um, but they're things that you might not be thinking of unless you, the concepts have sort of been introduced to you and you're, you have an eye for it and you have a thought process behind it. Yeah. Sounds like part of what you're saying too is like self-assessment could be important. Um, and that gets me thinking about, you know, the number of people that ride alone. Is is riding alone something you personally do or like would you recommend people not doing that? I do ride alone. And, you know, here's the thing. Mountain biking is a risky sport. I mean, my fiance died doing it. I am never going to advocate for not riding or for not racing Mm -hmm. or for playing it incredibly safe because, you know, it's just not realistic and it's not fun. You know, but I think you can take some precautions. Um, I think you can, you know, carry a first aid kit. I think that you can get trained in first aid and CPR. And I think if you're going to ride alone, you could send a text to folks and just let them know where you're going. You could wear a road ID that lists any allergies and your blood type, possibly. Um, So you can kind of mitigate risk a little bit, but still go out there and have a fantastic time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, you make a good point, too. I mean, we're a community of riders, of people who enjoy doing this. And the more of us that are trained and know what we're looking for, what we're looking at when it comes to emergency situations, then then we're all going to be safer, really. So like you said, somebody could come down the trail and see you there, even though you're riding alone. Hopefully somebody else will, will come by. Right. And that's, I mean, that's just the whole point behind Backcountry Lifeline. That's really how it started. It was racers and riders reaching out to me saying I was there and I didn't know what to do. So, I mean, even if these race directors and event organizers lined their entire course with EMTs, (laughs) it will always be another rider who is the first one on the scene. Yeah. And so really it is, it's about, it's about being able to take care of each other and take care of yourself. But that's the beauty of the mountain bike community. You know, it's a close knit community where we're out there all together. We love doing the same stuff. Anytime you see a rider, you know that you've got something in common with them. And, you know, the goal is to be able to take care of each other. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to put it. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk about safety equipment and whether certain types of mountain bike rides are more risky than others. Stay tuned. You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. Okay, so maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find single tracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA and your purchase helps support the single tracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com. And thank you for your support. 
And we're back. So these days we're seeing improvements in safety equipment every year with technologies like MIPS. And more and more riders are adding protection like pads to their everyday rides. So I want to get your opinion. Is there still room for improvement in the safety gear that's available for mountain bikers? I mean, I think there's always room for improvement in everything we come up with. We could get our gear, you know, kind of more protective and harder and sturdier and lighter, hopefully, and more breathable and all these all these great things. But I really think probably one of the biggest things is actually just furthering and creating um, this this culture of safety. So, I mean, not too long ago, it was not very common to wear helmets riding. And Mm -hmm. thankfully, now it's like standard, you know? Right. So I think kind of part of it is there's a lot of gear out there, but getting folks to wear it as a norm, um, I think would be a great start. Uh, I was just mountain biking in Europe these last couple of weeks. And in one of the places we were riding, I found it really interesting that it was, you cannot access these trails unless you are wearing knee pads um, and a neck brace, like not, not allowed. Neck brace. Go. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. They were, I, I understood why after I took the first run, <laughs> um, it, was, it was a great, great suggestion. Um, but it was kind of cool because it leveled the playing field for everybody. I don't know that that's necessary on every single ride, but I do think that kind of creating a culture of safety is, is uh, a good first step. Eventually, you know, in some of these races, I would like to see that. I would like to see, okay, for this race, everybody has to wear this gear. So it's not, no one's at a disadvantage if they're wearing something heavier or bigger, uh, bigger right. or bulkier, that it's just kind of across the board. Um, and I know that they do do that sometimes, you know, with full face or something. But a lot of times it's sort of what you wear for safety gear is optional. So if we created that culture of safety and there was sort of that pressure to to everyone be doing the same thing, I think that could go a long way. I also think for some of those races, I'd really like to see it required to have first aid, CPR training, and maybe even to have to carry uh, some sort of communication device. Oh, yeah. Um, so I know they, they do that. Um, there's a big race here in, in uh, Crested Butte, from Crested Butte to Aspen. Um, it's a mountaineering race, but you have to carry a spot device. And if you don't own one, then you can rent one at the registration table. It's not not too dissimilar. You know, my thought process around this isn't too dissimilar from backcountry skiing, which I think has done a great job with creating that culture of safety and having the right knowledge and equipment. If you don't have a beacon shovel probe um, and you don't know how to use it and test for snow safety, you're sort of shamed out of the game you have to stay 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 in bounds or hang out in the lodge (laughs) so it'd be great to kind of see see us move in that direction silverton is a ski mountain in colorado that you have to show your beacon shovel and probe before you're allowed to um uh, get on the chairlift wow it's a barrier to entry yeah that's really interesting and like you said I, i think it does seem like people are wearing more protection and it's becoming more accepted i mean You know, a few years ago, many years ago, I guess at this point, people didn't always ride with helmets. And now we're seeing people with full face helmets. I mean, my my son thinks full face helmets are way cooler than, you know, half shells for some reason. So, yeah. So I'm with your son. (laughs) So. So, yeah, it's it's becoming cool and accepted. And um, we've got a local trail here that's 
that's got they've got like sort of a jump line and there are full face helmets that you can borrow like they just keep them like sort of hanging there um so if you do want to get extra rad you can (laughs) have the proper equipment available which i think is great yeah it is that's awesome there's nothing cool about getting completely wrecked you know um and compromising your body and your health and your longevity and all of that good stuff yeah and i think you know people are also getting smarter about it um concussions are a big thing right now um it's that's not going away anytime soon you know i remember a point in time in my college soccer career that concussions were almost like a badge of honor and now i mean it's not so much now it's a really big deal that's a it's a it's a serious thing with potential long-term health consequences so i think it's it's wonderful that we are moving in the direction of you know have all the fun you can but also do what you can to protect yourself yeah and like you said i mean a big big piece of all this is awareness and understanding how serious something like a concussion is and then understanding too how you can sort of minimize that risk and and then respond to it if you do see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that certain types of riding like maybe enduro or downhill are more dangerous than other styles of riding? Yes and no. So I mean certainly downhill and enduro they're my favorite types of riding <laughs> and they're rowdier, you know. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that we look at quite a bit when when there is an injury is something called the MOI. It's the mechanism of injury. And when you have a mechanism of injury present, um, it just increases your your suspicion, the likelihood that that an injury is going to be significant. So, you know, a person standing up and falling over has, you know, no MOI or a very low MOI versus a person standing, you know, on a roof and taking that same fall and flying quite a big distance, you know, much larger MOI. So with racing, you know, all of a sudden you have um, speed is a big kind of mechanism of injury there. And then when you get to downhill and enduro, you might have, you know, some, some drops and that sort of thing that, that add to it. So in that sense, yeah, it's, it's dangerous. You know, we trust that everybody kind of rides within their limits, but you know, when, when Will crashed in an enduro race, it was on nothing technical. It was, um, you know, a a very regular piece of trail. So it's not always the case. And I know NICA, the National Interscholastic Cycling Association is one of our partners, they have done a study where some of their injuries have happened, um, regardless of how minor. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are really close to the trailhead. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, although enduro and downhill do have some, um, you know, significant gnarliness to them and some greater risks that pose some some higher than average mechanisms of injury, the same stuff can happen with, you know, backcountry and backyard riding. Yeah. And you know, in fact, though we teach first aid for for mountain bikers specifically, um, that's because that's the community you know that Will was from and where this all originated, and really the community that we want to give back to. Myself and the the other racers that co-founded the organization. But that being said, the vast majority of first aid issues and even emergencies still happen within the home. So everything that we're teaching is also uh, applicable. And we get a lot of moms and dads and families coming in also because, you know, you don't need a, a big downhill hit 
to be needing <laughs> to be needing some first aid knowledge. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it seems like enduro in particular, I mean, it's, it's a fairly new discipline. I mean, people have been writing sort of enduro style for a long time, but the race format is still fairly new and it's kind of evolving. Are there things that maybe could be done to make it a little safer? I mean, compared to downhill where the courses are much more regulated and, you know, there's more opportunities for pre-riding and all these sorts of things. I mean, do you think enduro could potentially be safer? Are there things that maybe should be done? If there is, I'm sort of at a loss. I think that really the best the best thing we can do right now, the best actions we can take are being sure that those conversations are being had um, regarding, you know, do the local EMS folks know exactly where we're riding is there um, some exit points? Where would we land a helicopter? Who would make these different calls mm-hmm. um, and do the communications with the riders, with EMS, you know, with the public, perhaps having a solid incident action plan and educating your riders? You know, again, some I think first aid and CPR basics go a long way in those contexts. I think having really solid communications that you've tried and tested is the best we can do. I mean, the whole point of enduro riding is to get way the hell back there and off, <laughs> uh, you know, right. off the beaten path. That's the fun of it. And so I think it would be really hard to control for every risk. And I think that we would be, you know, fooling ourselves if we think that we can. So it's kind of just being able to, to do the best we can with what we've got. Yeah. Sounds like you're saying too, the risks aren't necessarily greater for different types of rides. Um, but, but the real difference is how you're able to react to them, I guess. So like you're saying, a lot of accidents happen near the trailhead, um, which it's got me wondering exactly why that might be, but that kind of speaks to, I guess the way that you have your courses laid out where there's one course for backcountry and then there's another for front country riding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what was behind kind of the why this occurred, but it was something they noticed, which I found pretty interesting also. You know, a lot of times you kind of think, oh, there's this one techie section, there's this one big hit. And that's not to say that some rider isn't going to huck themselves off that thing and get completely mangled. But mm-hmm. most riders are pretty self-aware and, and ride within their limits, I think. Maybe in the race environment, you get a little a little extra adrenaline because of the, you know, just the whole scene of it and people cheering and, you know, you're have this collective push forward to, you know, charge hard. But I still think for the most part, I mean, I see people take the B lines when they know that they should be taking the B lines. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure where exactly or why that that was what it was um, in terms of that finding. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's you're tired when you're coming back. So you're near the trailhead. Um, is generally where you're going to be tired and then going out. Yeah. Maybe see your equipment. I'd be really interested to know why that is. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. So before we close, I wanted to ask you, how can writers learn more? I mean, it sounds like you have a couple of different courses that they can take. How do they get involved and sign up for these courses and learn more information? Yeah. So the best way to do it is just to come to our website, it's backcountrylifeline.com. We do have a couple different courses. And typically the way it works is folks reach out to us and say, hey, look, I have a group or a bunch of friends or, um, you know, I work at a 
you know, bike park or um, whatever the case. Um, and we'd like to have a course here. And then, you know, we get 10 or so people together and uh, sometimes much larger, you know, 30 or 100. And we stay there for multiple days and get get folks trained. So it's kind of a what we have found, we used to just sort of put on courses and then wait for them to fill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did find that it was, it ultimately, you know, never works with everybody's schedule. So right. typically now people reach out to us, request a course, and um, then we come to your location um, and, and teach you there. And that was really part of, uh, you know, our model was to remove the barriers that, that folks were citing as to reasons they weren't trained yet or, you know, couldn't get trained or that sort of thing. It was usually cost or relevance. They couldn't find a a course that kind of suited their needs or just, you know, where to go. So we try to bring the courses to people. We make the material extremely relevant. And then uh, we subsidize the cost due to some really great sponsorship from the mountain bike industry. Oh, that's really cool. Do you have opportunities for people or do you have a need for instructors? Is there sort of a way for people to level up and then go out and teach others? Or do you have like a set sort of staff that does all the training? No, we're, are, we're always looking for more people. Um, Backcountry Lifeline at this point, we started in Colorado. But after partnering with both Big Mountain Enduro, Enduro World Series, and NICA, the National Cycling, uh, Interscholastic Cycling Association, we have been teaching courses across the country. So it's actually great for us to have some other folks who are already uh, trainers and or, you know, have medical certifications to then learn our curriculum and help us teach so that we can spread the love. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you for joining us, Bonnie, to talk about this very important topic. And thank you for all that Backcountry Lifeline is doing to protect mountain bikers. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun talking about it. Cool. Well, remember, you can get connected with Backcountry Lifeline at backcountrylifeline.com. And be sure to connect with Single Tracks to keep up with the latest news by subscribing to our email list or following us on social media. That's all we have this week. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>